All right, everybody, this is our last episode until season five of She-Ra, assuming that is coming at some point down the pike. Seems like it must be. Pretty sure we can assume that one. Yeah. So uh, I don't know how long we'll be gone because we don't have any hint as to when the new episodes will drop. So uh, I hope you get your fill of us this week. At some point in the middle, we will come back with a predictions episode, a sort of check-in with both politics and the fandom. And we are still working with getting a really cool guest for that that you have been asking for. So in the interim, you will hear from us at least once. There's also a really cool guest that you've asked for at the end of this episode that we recorded before we recorded this. Time traveling as always. But yeah, Lauren's right. A lot of political stuff is going to happen before the next time you hear us. The Iowa caucus is tomorrow as we record crazy shit happening with Bernie Sanders and people reacting to the fact that he might actually win. It's real wild. Uh, in other news, I'm opening a restaurant this Friday, so I don't know what my life's going to be like. Yeah, just you personally and nobody else. I mean, of the two people who work on this podcast, you I are, am. You are more opening a restaurant than, than I am. you are, That's correct. True. <laughs> what are Yeah, what are you doing with your life, Lauren? Grad school. Right. Podcasting. Yep. Well, uh, but we just covered that we're not doing podcasting right now. You said my life, not the next couple of days. <laughs> dance, dance, party, party. A lot of things, Eric. I'm cool and I'm, I have friends and commitments. <laughs> I never Jeez. said you didn't have friends <laughs> projecting much. I'm just saying we're both really busy and like by the time this episode or by the time this podcast comes back, we'll be in very different life situations personally and like nationwide probably. Yeah, I'm sure time's going to fly by though. Once uh once that announcement hits, it's going to be news 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 and then we'll be right back. Don't even worry about it. Hello, everybody. This is She-Ra, Progressive of Power. And as usual, my name is Lauren. And for one more week still, I'm Eric. Definitely, we have uh, just a lot of things that I want to cover before we disappear for a while. We have a lot of fan mail and a lot of fan questions, uh, a lot of just things that have gotten our attention, like someone decided to tweet at me with what Kool-Aid looks like in Brazil. Lauren has a brand now, and it's Kool-Aid and Pop-Tarts. Yeah, and apparently the mascot for the Brazilian version of Kool-Aid is in fact Kool-Aid Man, but the the brand name is Ki Suko, or I think it's, yeah, I have to imagine that's how it's Because you don't want to say Kai Sako. I don't want to say Kai Sako. Well, I used to speak some Spanish, and I have to imagine it's closer to that than anything. Thank you for the awesome uh, picture, Gabriel, of literally the same Kool-Aid man we have in America. Is he called the Kisuko man over there? I have just more questions. So many questions. We also have an episode to cover today, and then at the end of this, you're going to hear an interview with Suna Weirmeyer, the composer for Shira, which is very exciting. We Skyped her in earlier this week. So. Yes, that was another fan request. We really appreciate you guys telling us what you want to hear. A couple of you said you wanted a conversation about the music of Shira. The music is an extraordinarily important part of the show, especially this episode where we get a brand new theme for one of our princesses. So we're really glad to talk to Sana today. Today we're covering the episode Destiny Part 2, the season finale of season four of Shira. So much happens in this episode, but it's really just knocking down most of the dominoes that were set up last episode. So basically, Hordak and Catra have a knockdown dragout fight once Hordak has learned that Entrapta is in fact not a deserter, but was sent to Beast Island by Catra. So that storyline kind of wraps up pretty well. Glimmer convinces Scorpia to help the princesses, and 
bring her runestone online, which seems cool for a second because all the princesses power up like in an anime. But then once they're all powered up, the um, the weapon at the heart of Etheria starts to use them all to channel this huge destructive force through. And uh, it, it basically like is killing them. And of course, all this energy gets channeled through She-Ra. And so the big kind of conflict of the episode is, can Adora do anything about this? Because she's been told this whole time that her destiny is to complete the activation at the heart of Etheria. But in a very kind of nevertheless she persisted moment, Adora decides that she will be no part of it and lets all of the energy channel into her sword. And instead of expelling it, uh, destroys her sword. Yes, that moment was really amazing. I shed a few tears watching it again this time, especially seeing Light Hope sort of fighting her programming versus the personality and friendship she developed with Mara. The visually seeing Mara holding the flowers and smiling and sort of pulling Light Hope away from her own destiny was really moving. Agree. And so that kind of brings the whole Heart of Etheria plot to a close, except who else has been looming over this season a literally looming in the sky is Horde Prime. Right. And so he kind of beams up Hordak, Catra, and Glimmer, and uh, in a very horrifying moment, decides that Hordak has been a fool who only cares about himself, kind of mind wipes Hordak, and uh, decides that he's going to destroy Etheria so no one hears about Hordak's failure. But then Catra, in a weird bit of maybe finally thinking about other people, convinces Horde Prime that if he destroys Etheria, he'll also be destroying this galaxy destroying weapon at its heart and horde prime should instead try to claim the weapon and so horde prime at the end is like all right i guess i'll get to know you guys until i can figure out this weapon i'm very conflicted about whether or not catra was thinking about other people in that moment i think you absolutely can read that as her protecting glimmer and may i just say a thousand catra and glimmer ships were launched in this episode (laughs) wow it's true but also uh She's very much mimicking a lesson she learns from Double Trouble earlier in another scene. Double Trouble shows up in this episode to basically say they're just going to join whatever side is winning because that's how you survive. And Catra may also just be trying to survive. It's true. I I do wonder if maybe this is the seeding of a Catra and Glimmer relationship or at least friendship because they're stranded on this ship alone with like a Hordak who is now presumably has no recollection of any of past events. So it's really just them versus this entire galactic empire. And part of me thinks maybe this is the start of Catra's redemption arc is she's going to save her people against this like force. I also think uh, I agree with that entirely. And I also think this is the chance for Entrapdak to eventually really happen Um, in all of my rants about how could someone who's committed so much genocide and done so much universal ill ever be forgiven? Them being completely lobotomized, I suppose, is a way to do that. Yeah, so that, okay, there's so many things we have to talk about in this episode, like Lauren said. First one, Hordak. What are our thoughts on the fact that by the end he's seemingly a, a vegetable that Horde Prime has just destroyed? Because I think some viewers see this as a moment of sympathy for Hordak, because there's kind of been this implication throughout that he's the, you know, redheaded stepchild the imperfect clone who couldn't even conquer one technologically backwards world. And his boss destroys him for that. Do you feel sympathy at this moment? I don't know if sympathy is the right word. I will give myself my usual, like, I called it pat on the back in that 
Katra in this episode is saying to Hordak things that I've been saying through a lot of this season that I have no idea why Hordak assumes when his big brother comes back to town, he's going to give a shit about him. Because if the given circumstances are Hordak's a reject, Hordak is a mistake, and Horde Prime deletes all of the mistakes, there I just couldn't imagine a universe in which Horde Prime sweeps in and suddenly they're best friends. Katra says so, and that's literally what happens. And so I can feel sympathy in the vaguest sense of like, this guy has been pining for this outcome and has been leaning on his 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 assumptions of what's going to happen in the future. But he's been wrong the whole time. Yeah, he so clearly wants the approval of his brother, which is fascinating because pretty much everyone in the Horde is just craving someone's approval, right? Certainly that's Glimmer. Or I'm, I'm sorry. Certainly that's Catra and Scorpia. Uh, both of their their wants are that other people will recognize them. And Hordak ultimately wants that too. And he doesn't get it in a very stark way. So I guess I feel a little bad, even though he's still a villain. Also, it's shocking because he's like your villain. You know what I mean? Like you spend this whole series fearing him, and then he's dispatched so cruelly by a bigger bad. Yeah, I would certainly say that from this point forward, Horde Prime is going to become a bigger force in the show than he ever had the opportunity to become in the 80s. Because Hordak was our villain in the 80s, too. Right. And, and there was a Horde Prime in the 80s, but he was patently ridiculous. In this version, uh, Horde Prime is just kind of a, a leaner Hordak. So, it's literally the same voice, isn't it? It is. It's Keston John, RIP Good Place. Do you know who he plays in Good Place? He's, uh, he's Chidi's friend. Uzo, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who was just in the he, finale. He makes it. Yeah, he makes it in the end. Spoiler. Um, I read a tweet from Noel that um, Keston would come in and listen to choral music on his iPhone while he was recording Horde Prime's lines because he felt like they had to be delivered with gravity. Just more refined. But, okay, there's another important question about Hordak out there, Lauren, that literally more than one person has messaged us to talk about. Yeah, you delightful weirdo fans. <laughs> so... <laughs> We got more than one contact in the course of like 72 hours asking us the same thing. So hello to Chase on Twitter and hello to Ashley, who sent us an email. Ashley, who is allowing us to use her first name and nothing more because they she thought she was going to be alone in this question. But I know she's not. I know she's not. The question is, is Hordak hot? So we have a special guest in the studio who's never seen She-Ra and the Princesses of Power before. This is, uh, you guys know I work on the show Mortified. This is the musical director of Mortified. We just wrapped with a meeting. Uh, everyone, please welcome to the studio Mr. Dwight Hassler. Hello, Dwight. Hello. Um, <laughs> Dwight is here as an impartial third party because Lauren and I are very close to this. And Dwight will only judge based on looks. Now, Dwight, I think we have to... <laughs> on everything. We have to calibrate your... Um, Get way closer to the mic. Yeah. We, we have to calibrate your levels of attractiveness. So, first of all, it, it probably is worth stating that you are a straight man. But you can be objective about men yeah. and women. So, yeah. like, what are... Can you name an example of, like, a man that you think is very hot? Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill. Cavill. Yeah. Lauren, thoughts? Henry Cavill is very, um, I think, conventionally attractive. Mm -hmm. Very, like, lantern-jawed, kind of split-chin kind of Superman, obviously, because he plays Superman thing. 
I'm, he's not my favorite guy based on some of his comments he made in, uh, surrounding the Me Too movement. Really? I thought his apology oh, was pretty that. clumsy. But, like, if we're just talking about looks, uh, <laughs> the Witcher can get it. So, Lauren, who's a man that you find attractive? And I'll, we'll put this question to Dwight whether he thinks the same. Killian Murphy. Is it Cillian Murphy? Cill- I think it's Cillian. Killian or Cillian Murphy. I like that we can't pronounce the names of the people we think are hot. <laughs> well, what's that like, about their names? Definitely like Peaky Blinders, Scarecrow, uh, the dark hair, pale eyes thing really does it for me. What's your thoughts on Cillian Murphy? I think in like certain situations he's attractive, <laughs> but sometimes, I don't know, I just, no, not my cup of tea. Well, I like the cheekbones and I kind of like him creepy. So we have different tastes. <laughs> so now that we've objectified men and calibrated our attractiveness, I'm about to turn around my laptop and show Dwight a Google image search of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power Hordak. And so, Dwight, the question is, is the character that you're about to see hot? Um, <laughs> I think, again, this is like a aesthetically like very angular uh, anatomy, which is, is, is pleasing, I guess. I think... The face is kind of like if, if you're into like with vampires, maybe <laughs> like good looking. But you know, I mean, everyone's beautiful in their own way. Oh, that's sweet. Honest reaction. I think honest reaction from Dwight. Lauren, do you think Hordak is hot? Mm, yes, asterisk. So generally, I'm gonna say yes. But I can't deal with this, like, Richard Spencer kind of haircut that he has. <laughs> if he grew his hair out to look less like a white supremacist, <laughs> now that he is maybe going to be a good guy, I would be more on this team. I'm going to say that I see it. Uh, I, can, I can see the attraction. He is very gaunt and very, very vampiric. Um, right. And I like... Uh, like a, like a, I, I tweeted once that my favorite aesthetic is like, um, like professorial ghost, and so <laughs> I can I can see the cheekbone facial structure thing. I'm in for it. He's also got a small waist compared to like a wider chest, so it makes him look strong, like he could hold you. I, I'm not feeling the haircut mm. though. So, all right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he could hold you. I think that's that's the right <laughs> line. Lauren, do you think Filmation Hordak is hot? No. No. No, he also snorts a lot, and so I bet that dude snores. Um, do you think Four Horsemen Hordak is hot? From whoa. The, this is from the, um, like, abandoned um, 20, uh, 2002 Masters of the Universe Hordak design. Holy smokes. My feelings about that design is, like, less that's hot and more I want to be that. Yeah. Like, Ooh, I want yeah. to cast that silhouette with my shoulders. The 2002 Hordak is a real beefy boy, just so you know. Not, like, chunky, but, like, very imposing. Yeah, like, never misses arm day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, th- there are very scientific thoughts on whether Hordak is hot. Um, there was another part of one of the people who wrote to us. They wanted us to take a poll uh, of the fandom and see how do we all feel about Entrapped Dak. Yes. Uh, I ship it now basically as of this two-part episode. Their complex feelings for each other are opening up a lot of doors for future plot lines and maybe future conversations between them. And now that... Hordak is essentially maybe starting over mentally. He can maybe be brought into a place where he can have 
healthier, more supportive relationships. Still really tough, though. Still really tough with him being a genocidal evil guy. I ship it, but it's like a real tenuous ship. I think I align with Lauren. I think if anyone out there has really strong feelings, we'd love to hear them. Um, it, it seems like a lot of us are very slowly waking up to the fact that this might be okay. I was very against it earlier in the show, but I'm coming around. Right. If I were to give an award to, like, most improvement, <laughs> it would be this ship because I came the furthest on this one. I've come further on this one than I did on Mermista Seahawk. <clears throat> and we know how Lauren feels about Seahawk. Mm-hmm. All right. That's probably enough objectifying Hordak. <laughs> what else do we need to talk about in this episode? Um, well, I, we have uh, one more fan letter from oh, yeah. Brazil. It is from Samuel, also known as Sam. And it is uh, just yet another letter telling us that the she fandom and our listenership is just huge in Brazil. I can't get over it. One of the things that Sam writes about is a potential redemption for Catra. Even though we talk about it a lot on this show, it is really just the most popular question in the fandom, if you ask me. And so I always want to do it justice uh, and bring it up when our fans comment on it. Sam says, I think that a huge part of her redemption needs to be her acknowledging that the people she's hurting don't deserve to be punished because of what she went through. To make it clear, I in no way want to erase the abuse Catra went through. She had a horrific life that's a product of a gigantic abuse cycle. I understand why she does the things she does. But I do not want the show to acknowledge that her trauma does not give her a right to treat people who had nothing to do with what the Horde did to her as not deserving of freedom in life. A lot of, like, double and triple negatives in there, but I think the point is, yes, Catra redemption, but only if Catra herself is able to say the things I did to other people were wrong and they did not deserve them. And that would be a huge step. Catra has not shown much of an ability toward that yet. But this might tee us up for it, maybe, in this episode, which would be nice. I, I mean, we do see Catra probably at her lowest. I think, weirdly, when Double Trouble twists the knife, that is like Catra kind of losing any any hope that things would have been okay. Like, the, the scene where Double Trouble reveals their traitorship is just heartbreaking. Like, literally, they open by saying, hey, Catra. And then they say, you try so hard to play the big bad villain, but your heart's never been in it. Maybe everyone who left you isn't the problem. Maybe it's you. Like, double trouble of all people just fucking destroys Catra 1.0. Right. So hopefully there's a 2.0 coming around the corner. I really like this scene because I think it shows us, for once, Double Trouble's actual opinion. Nobody's paying Double Trouble to say these things. And so it's an opportunity that they get to say what's really on their mind before quickly running away to the side they think is going to allow them to survive. Uh, one thing I want to note about that scene is that Double Trouble transforms into a bunch of different characters in Catra's life and sort of articulates the blame that Catra placed on each of those people. So for Shadow Weaver, Shadow Weaver didn't believe in Catra. And for Hordak, it's Hordak didn't trust Catra. And when she turned into Adora, I was waiting for the word love to be used, but the word chosen was need. Adora didn't need Catra. And I actually think that's more of an intimate choice and a wounding choice than love. Catra doesn't want Adora's love. Catra wants to be needed by Adora. And that, I think, can and should be romantically interpreted, but is more than that, too. It's way more than that. I agree. 
I agree. Um, there's one other letter I want to call out, which lets us talk about another character who gets a huge spotlight in this episode. We we got a letter from a friend of ours in uh, in England named Becky. Uh, Becky opened her letter by saying, I am hot and a teen, although not in your area, unless your area is the She-Ra fandom. So instantly I was like, Becky, you're cool. Cause you might remember I was being a real creep and asking for hot teens a few weeks ago. Don't, please don't say we. <laughs> I said, that. I said, I, okay. <laughs> I said, I, you're very worried about me implicating you. I'm extremely tell, defensive. The, Lauren, it was all Lauren's idea. Lauren kept, she, she held a pencil to my head and said, if you don't ask for hot teens on Mike, there's going to be hell to pay a pencil that because there's no guns in here there's pencils we're in an office for god's sake and i am basically the joker right exactly but becky uh Becky said very nice things about our show. She wrote that Scorpia is her favorite character. Partly this is due to her personality, despite some questionable actions. She is very lovable and quite relatable for me. The other main reason is that seeing a character that is strong and likes hugs, isn't skinny, but is dense as heck, has cool spiky hair and comes across as so casually a little butch, makes something in my little heart so happy. Like, yeah, you shouldn't judge people based on their looks, but she, along with some other characters, is visibly queer and it makes me so happy. Um, she wanted to comment on the discussion we had about She-Ra and queer baiting, and mentioned that she agrees that it's pretty ridiculous people would say that the show is queer baiting, but does hope that by the time the show closes out, there's a few more like openly LGBT characters, um, since the only like gay relationship out there right now is Spinnerella and Natasha, who are pretty relegated to like F tier. Yeah, and Bo's two dads and who Bo's. are not even on screen most episodes. Right, exactly. So I, I think that's a really fair thing to ask for. And uh I yeah, that makes sense to me. But on the topic of Scorpia, Scorpia's uh I don't even know if she needs a redemption arc anymore. She's pretty much on the side of angels, but she really kicks off in this episode. Yeah, we get to see a little more of that glimmer and Scorpia interaction where Scorpia is feeling self-doubt and isn't sure she'd be a good princess. I think she wants to be one for sure at this point. She just doesn't know if she deserves it or if she'd be skilled at it. And Glimmer keeps saying, we're behind you. You can do it. You're going to be a great princess. And I just keep being kind of skeeved out by Glimmer because Glimmer is just really wanting to balance the planet and use Light Hope's weapon. She doesn't realize until the very end of this episode that she's been used. Glimmer does, in fact, admit Adora was right by the time the episode closes. Scorpia, no matter what her personal motivation ends up being, does connect with the Black Garnet, gets like incredible, terrifying lightning powers, and a new theme song written by our friend Suna, who we will talk to later today. Yeah, so it looks like the table's set for Scorpia to be purely a good guy next season, although I'm sure there's some lingering issues with, you know, choices she's made with allegiances, but I'm pretty excited to see Scorpia. <laughs> You're amazing! Thank you. It's terrifying. And fun? It's terrifying. <laughs> Go help the other princesses finish the fight. I'm going to find Hordak and Katra. <sighs> Katra! I know she's done a lot of bad things, but... Don't hurt her. We're the good guys. Remember? I think the last major plot we have to talk about is kind of the... It's almost the end of the arc this series has been building to with Adora's destiny because as we mentioned she does deny destiny and instead of becoming this channel for a huge weapon destroys her sword and thus seemingly loses her Shira power in process by the way getting a very classic 80s Shira look because her hair gets blown down and she looks like 80s Adora oh yeah I guess she does 
I was going to say I'm surprised that Adora transforms without hesitation immediately at the beginning of this episode. We saw her wondering last time if she should even do it anymore, knowing that she's the key to this horrible weapon. You have to imagine that transforming into She-Ra gets her several steps closer to causing the apocalypse. Right, although I don't think she could have stopped it without being She-Ra either. Exactly. But exactly. did she know that? Who knows? Uh, there's also a few more revelations about her her um, background. So it's confirmed that she's the first one's descendant and that, in fact, Light Hope brought Adora to Etheria through the portal. So then what did Hordak bring in that flashback? I don't know if he brought anything. I, I started wondering if he just, for some reason, happened to be standing in the right spot. Like Light Hope brought her through... And almost there to catch her was this nearby being Hordak. Well, that, unless that's just unless that flashback was fake. Well, I no, I think you're right because I think what you're saying actually works with the dialogue because Hordak says he arrived too late, so it's very probable that he actually did find nothing. And then, oh, here's this baby, like not through the portal or anything, but just here. So I think there's some. The more the show goes on, the more I think it's going to totally dovetail from the classic Shira He-Man mythology, but like. Definitely some major questions about her Do her you heritage. still think she was brought from Eternia? I do, um, because Eternia is the code word that opens uh, First Ones tech. So I suspect that Eternia is the home planet of the First Ones. Uh, yeah, I have to think that's still going to come out, because we also say for the honor of Grayskull, and in this show, they never explain what Grayskull and, is. But, but they do call attention to that in one of the online shorts, where one of um, Perfuma's like, hippie people uh, sees Adora transform and is like, what is Grayskull? So, like, you know that people are... They want you to be wondering. Yeah, exactly. So, I bet we'll find out, but I don't think it's going to be all that similar to what we have known before. I just really admired the voice acting of Light Hope in this episode when She-Ra is threatening to break the sword and thus sort of break the cycle itself. You can see Light Hope fighting her own programming and there's a line, I always leave my Netflix on with captions mm. because there's always something going on in my house. I'm doing homework or other people are talking or something's going on in the other room. And the the screen, the caption said, don't do it as one sentence. But don't do it. The delivery. Yeah. In the yeah. delivery, it's don't, don't and then do an affirmative, it. do it. Yeah. And God, I just thought that was the coolest line read I've heard in this show. It's really great. And I guess important to touch on in this sequence is that Adora says she was gone when the sword is destroyed. But we know, and ha it has been said, that the sword is not She-Ra. So like you said last episode, I'm positive that she will learn to transform without it. And now I'm thinking that might not even be the sword of protection. That possibly there's like another sword. Yeah, I had a couple of, um, have we talked about my tattoo? Holy smokes. Oh, yeah. So, okay, I have a tattoo now. It's brand new. I got it last week, and it is the Sword of Protection, but it is the 80s version. It's the throwback, like, you know, filmation sword, because when we started this show, that's initially what we were talking about. And I just think it's, I mean, my opinion is that it's cooler looking, but I posted a picture of my arm on Reddit because I love getting internet points for all the things I do in my life. Get that clout. Get that upvote. And someone said, I wonder if we're going to see this sword in season five. Like now that the old sword is shattered, is this one going to be the new hotness? And I would love for that to be true 
But honestly, the thing that makes me doubt it is literally tattoos, because some of our friends at DreamWorks got the sword tattooed onto themselves. And why would they tattoo a bad, evil sword onto themselves if a better one was coming? Well, they lived with it for four seasons. That's fair. I don't know. That's that's fair. I see what you're saying. But I I think there's going to be some twist, certainly some twist with the sword next season, because there's no way She-Ra's gone. <laughs> She-Ra is not a sword. She-Ra is you. Huh? Etheria chose you. But my people chose me to be She-Ra. I need the sword to control She-Ra's magic. That's what my superiors always told me. <laughs> She-Ra was here long before your people arrived. You cannot control magic. Magic simply is. One more note from a fan. Um, I promised I'd give him a shout out. Alex Govo reached out to me on Instagram basically just to say that he enjoys the show and thank you for being a fair voice is what he called us. I love the word fair. It makes me feel so journalistic and cool. Uh, And he asks if we're going to be at C2E2. C2E2 is like the big Chicago Comic Con or one of a couple huge ones that we have here in our city. Are you going to be at C2E2, Eric? God, I'm going to be all over C2E2. So actually, Mortified has a C2E2 performance uh, Sunday, March 1st at uh, 2.45 p.m. at the Cards Against Humanity Theater. The Chicago Board Game Cafe will have a very cool um, cart, motorized cart, selling some of our favorite board games uh, out by the registration area the whole weekend. Uh, there also, I heard a rumor, will be a um, a special giveaway you can get there that will give you access to a, an off-menu item at the cafe. Ooh, I wonder how you got a hold of that rumor. I don't know. <laughs> I I generally don't, and this isn't me like begging for a gig, but I generally don't go to C2E2 unless I am on a panel or I'm doing promo modeling or I have some sort of job to do there. Because if if I don't have that, I literally like drink beer and overspend on art. I'll just like my eyes will just glaze over and suddenly I've spent $300 on prints. And so I need to have a task at that convention or I will just be lost. So I don't have any plans to go there right now unless someone's like, you're a booth babe at this booth. Don't wander off and do anything stupid. I can give you a job, but I don't need you to be a babe. I need you to sell things. I'm always a babe, babe. Well, (laughs) I don't... What I want to say now for the joke is is that the next episode we'll discuss is Lauren Hot, but that's so grossly inappropriate. It, I mean, it it is, and it's already answered. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, before we go, a uh, shout out to our friend Quinn, the creator of For the Honor RPG. She asked if we would let everyone know that she is kickstarting the game. Uh, the Kickstarter for For the Honor RPG is going to be launching on the 13th of February. It's going to run for two weeks as part of Zine Quest 2. Her goal is $1,500 to cover the cost of the art and printing zines. Uh, check For the Honor RPG on Twitter for updates on that Kickstarter. So if you remember the episode where we played that together, if that game sounded interesting to you or something you'd like to support, the Kickstarter's coming soon. I'll back it. Yeah, me too. So now that you've heard us talk for a while, we're going to let you hear us talk to a, a very cool person who works on She-Ra. And then you'll hear us in, I don't know, a few months probably. Yeah. 
you can come say hi at C2E2 if you want to do that with me. And uh, we'll be around. We're on the internet. Yep, definitely keep sending us email, keep sending us snail mail, tweets, and uh, then we can be <laughs> overwhelmed by the amazing backlog of questions and feedback when we come back. We love to hear from you so, so much. Yeah, and we're around. So thanks, thanks for a good season. It was a long season. I bet there's one more left. I bet. And now, enjoy Sunna. So far here on the podcast, we've been honored to have so many different people behind Shira guest on our show. We've talked to Noelle Stevenson, Amy Carrero, several of the writers and artists and executives. And today we're welcoming someone really unique. Uh, we had uh, actually a listener ask if we could speak to this person. and More than a couple, I think. Yeah, actually. more than a couple. Once, once one person got the idea out there, it turned into a like, yeah, 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 we want to have a conversation about music. So uh, let's not keep it any further. This is our guest for the day, Suna Weirmeyer, the composer for Shira and the Princesses of Power. Welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, when we when we do interviews like this, we tend to start, I mean, not usually with the lens pulled out that wide, but we like to talk about first the job because a lot of our fans are young. Um, maybe they're not super privy to show business. And so before we even get into Shira, I would like to hear from you just a little bit about composing. So how, I mean, for lack of a better phrasing, how does music composition for television happen? Like, where do you start? When in a production process are you brought in? Could you tell us a little bit about your job? Sure, sure. Um, it really depends on the project at what point you get you know, brought in. But let's say for something like Shira and most animation, you, you, uh, you're part of post-production, i.e., you know, the, the film or the, the show has been made and they need music. So, um, in a case like Shira, I, I'm sent, um, the, the full episode with no music and we watch it together. In this case with Noel Stevenson and a few other people. And, uh, you know, we have a conversation about where should music happen, what should it be, and then, um, you know, then the whole procrastination and panic starts. <laughs> and after, <laughs> after. So, so voices are recorded before you come in with the score. Yeah, yeah. There, in cases of some like bigger films and stuff, then the movie is being cut at the same time as the music is being written. So then you'll often have to rewrite scenes that are made shorter and longer. Uh, but often with animation, you just get a locked cut, as it's called. So you know that whatever you're writing will be, you know, you don't have to shorten or, like, you know, make it longer. It's just going to be what it is, which is great. Um, and that's a great way to work for me. And that is in a very small nutshell. <laughs> what so I to clarify all that, when are you hired? Like, when did you get this gig? Um, I got this gig me years ago. Um I mean, it's all happening months before it, it launches on Netflix, obviously. Um, gosh, yeah, I guess I'm hired when they have a bunch of episodes that are near, in production and they basically have one that's done. You know, they're sort of in that, you know, there's a whole demoing process beforehand. You know, there, there's like DreamWorks is sending out uh, requests to agents, you know, do you have composers who can demo for this is the style. So you send in a demo. And after that round, you 
if you get picked, you and a few other people have to do a, a spec demo. This is just for a dream work. Every, every company works differently. But um, I had to write three scenes uh, for Shira. And this was all still with like pencil drawings. It wasn't the final picture. And uh, based on that, I, I got the gig. And then I guess a few weeks later, the writing actually started. That is fascinating to hear you talk about this process. I'm about to say something very nerdy about myself, which is I am, to my knowledge, the only person to ever publish a peer-reviewed essay on the music of Transformers the movie, 1986. <laughs> and I, I know from watching plenty of documentaries that um, the way – maybe this wasn't typical of 80s films or animation, but – like that film, which was scored by Vince DiCola, he only had animatics. And so the, the audio track came before even the animation. So in a lot of ways, the the finished film was edited to the music and to the audio track. And as a result, it ends up feeling like a music video. Really? Do you know, is, well, yeah. Like, I'm unsure. Is there some kind of shift in how animation is scored? Or um, is, was that maybe unique to, like, Transformers? Because I think they were going for, like, a kind of a heavy metal vibe that's... That's really fascinating. Yeah, this sounds like basically the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, it, it is sort of, um, I guess, different. I think from my knowledge, currently you will get uh, a cut that is, you know, fairly finished. Like, for instance, I also do Spirit, um, you know, the, also a DreamWorks series on Netflix about a horse. And, like, I'll, whatever the cut I'm getting is not quite the finished pro uh, product. So sometimes there'll be shots that are, you know sort of a simple drawing of what would be there. But then the week later, I do get the finished uh, animated version. So, no, I think I think these days people get a little more to work against. <laughs> so when your agent got that first piece of outreach from DreamWorks, you're saying it described maybe the style they were looking for or yeah. you know, a, a little bit about what you were aiming at. Could you tell us uh, back then some of the things that document might have said? Absolutely. That was basically, I mean, what they wanted at the time is basically what it became, which is um, a contemporary 80s um, synth soundtrack with, you know, with orchestra. Um, so that was basically the pitch. They they sent some examples of, um, gosh, was it Ellie Goulding or something? Um, so I've seen Ellie Goulding like four times live. She's one of my oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I have to feel like some churches is in there too, based on vibes from the show yeah that's exactly that, exactly right that's those were two examples <laughs> uh I, I wasn't actually familiar with these because i'm um gosh i feel like i'm ancient um which i'm not but i'm just a bit I'm, I'm always just sitting in my cave i don't really know what happens in the rest of the world but uh <laughs> yes those were examples so i did a demo of I don't know, 10 tracks of um sort of stuff in that vibe mostly stuff i had already written actually um and, you know, obviously they don't want that exactly. They just want to see if you can, you know, produce stuff sort of in that style. So that that was the round one thing, yeah. Great. And so moving forward then in that process, you're saying you get to watch the episodes with Noel and company. What are some of the parts of that conversation when you're talking with, with Noel and the other creators that they say maybe they're looking for in a specific moment. I imagine like the transformation sequence might've been a big one. Oh, that was a huge one. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, we've done a million episodes. So in the beginning, you know, these spotting sessions as they're called the, the, you know, session where you sit down and watch the things called a spotting session. Um, they used to last really long and obviously they got shorter and shorter because, you know, she would be like, 
You know what to do. <laughs> you kind of dial in, right? Yeah, you, yes, you'd think so after so many episodes. But in the beginning, I mean, Noelle is, I mean, she's so talented that she had very clear ideas of what she wanted and what she was looking for, which is great for me uh, because she could give me clear direction. And um, for instance, the transformation sequence, which is a good example, uh, it's definitely... Yeah, I, mean, I can't quite remember how they described it at the time. I mean, I sort of remember sitting in the room watching it, you know, with this feeling of excitement and panic at the same time. Because <laughs> you're like, I know I can write something really cool, but what if, what if I don't? Well, and you know they're going to play that one over and over and I over. Know. It's like no pressure. The thing uh, that brings me like the most joy, I think, in the whole soundtrack is the ascending guitar at the end of that transformation sequence that just hits that squeal at the end. It's so fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was great. Well, actually, so I I came up with the theme that was round one, and I did a I did an arrangement of it, and I liked the theme, but I just wanted it bigger. So I did a bigger version, and after I did it, they wanted it even bigger, and like more. I think I had woodwinds in there that they wanted out and just replaced by, you know, some synth bells and some high strings and stuff. And then at the end, I'm like, I, I think what this needs is just live guitar by a really good guitarist. And that's what happened. Um, um, I got I got a very good, you know, talented guitar player in L.A. play the main line and that basically brought it to life. And then uh, and then they loved it. That's so cool. I, I love hearing that the, uh, there's always like an 80s synth influence mixed with maybe more like contemporary emotional storytelling. I, I I was as a kid was like absolutely obsessed with the score for the original He-Man and She-Ra. I don't know, did you use that as a reference at all? Or are you familiar with like the kind of Haim Saban Shuki Levy work? Mm-hmm. Obviously you did like a cover of it for the throwback episode. Yeah, that was the only the only time they were they you know they asked us to do that. Uh you know this is gonna sound insane, but I'd never watched She-Ra before. That's not insane. That's most of the people we talked to actually. Really? Yeah. Oh, because I don't know if it just never made it to, to Holland, you know, where I'm from. Uh, maybe it did. I just completely missed it. I, I don't know, but I'd never watched it. And everybody I talked to, you know, my age, I'm 35, like, oh, my gosh, I used to, you know, I have to, you know, Island of Skull, whatever whatever it's called, the Grey Skull thing. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're really into it. And I'm like, how the hell did I miss this? <laughs> what the hell <laughs> Yeah, you and I are, are the same age, and... Uh, I, for whatever reason, He-Man was just such a huge part of my childhood, even though I, I did kind of miss it. Like, I, I was born in 84, so He-Man was on when I was a year old, you know? But I think Blockbuster Video just kept it alive for me. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I watched it, obviously, I, I watched some of it to look back. And, uh, well, you know, if you've never seen it and then you watch it now, you're like, well, this is a bit silly. <laughs> but that's yeah. what all the shows we used to watch as a child that I'm like, oh, I love this. But if I'm objective, like, oh, it's all a bit silly, uh, you know. Something else about the the classic that I, I think is interesting. So we did an episode on, on music uh, in the original series, and the kind of, in quotes, head composer, Haim Saban, is a really fascinating guy. He's, like, one of the largest political donors in the world and has, like, very influential purse strings. And his, like, kind of bona fides as a composer are somewhat in doubt because – he basically Saban and Levy just had like a uh, a stable of 
thirsty um, music creators who would sell their souls for almost no money and then sell them the rights to these, you know, these pieces that ended up um, getting repeated over and over because in classic animation, you would write one piece that would be in every episode. Uh, so there wasn't like original music, you know, um, which is fascinating because whereas they had a stable of people, you told us before the interview that you work alone on these. So all of the music we hear in Shira is purely your work. Yeah. Yeah, it is. There was a brief moment um, when I was pushing out a baby <laughs> that there were a couple <laughs> of episodes that I had my assistant um, do. But, you know, by that time, after being my assistant for so long, he knew, you know, how to sound like me and what to do. Um, so, yeah, credit where credit is due. But aside from that, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, yeah so I'm deeply, I'm just deeply impressed. I mean, I guess I'm going to just fangirl for a second, but I have a friend out in uh, L.A. who actually has an Oscar for his work on Life of Pi, uh, and he was telling me an awful lot about how the biggest composers you've heard of in Hollywood, like the guy who did Pirates of the Caribbean, actually has dozens of young people composing and working for him who will never get their name on anything as long as they work under him. And so to know, nope, you just did it by yourself, it kicks a lot of ass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I just always really enjoyed the show. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it was, yeah, it's just a great show and I, enjoy, I would enjoy it. It was, it was very close to the heart, you know, because, uh, yeah. I would I would feel like I was missing out if I would be giving it away to someone else. That makes sense. That's, that's really sweet. So in addition to doing animation, you've also done live action as well as some like pop rock stuff with Moby. Uh, are there substantial differences in scoring live action or is it more or less the same process from, from no, your vantage point? No, very different. Uh, someone said once like writing a minute of animation takes like – a year of your life or something like that or an hour of your life it's like writing animation is very intense like obviously you're hitting much more that's happening on screen because you know it, it's made from people people drawing and sound effects and music and that makes the whole thing you don't have real people with subtle facial expressions and stuff um like you know if you put animation music under live action it would always often sound over the top and silly well, it's in, in animation it would work really well. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's a yeah it's a very different product. So I can't quite put my finger on it always, but I think with the live action, you just take a step back a little bit. Um, it's just a different way of, of of hitting those emotions that you want people to feel. You know. So there was this great YouTube video a few years ago that you might be familiar with, uh, kind of asking why. Um, especially like superhero and fantasy sci-fi movie soundtracks don't seem to hit as hard as they used to. And it was arguing that live action fantastical soundtracks have become less thematic and more kind of uh, like subtle and emotions based. So whereas in, you know, 1989, Danny Elfman wrote an incredible theme for Batman that permeated the movie in the Nolan Batman movies. It was really just like a, uh, a low rumble was like the Batman theme was like two chimes or something, you know? I, yeah. uh, and I wonder, it seems like in animation a lot, there's a lot more like thematic stuff going on. Like there's definitely repeatable motifs and things that you can latch onto like melodically and say, yeah, this means that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, yeah, I think 
like everything, film music goes through waves of, you know, things that are in or hip or whatever. Uh, yeah, I can think of like Into the Spider-Verse. And when you say, what does Prowler's theme sound like? I know exactly what Prowler's theme sounds like now. Right, right. But pick yeah. any piece of music out of the MCU except the Avengers theme. Right, and I, I bet you couldn't. Can't. Yeah, exactly. But Shira, there's a couple, not just the theme. There's like that really cool synth. Like it comes up when Adora and Catra battle a lot. Like you hear it in the first training sequence and then you hear it several other times. Yeah, right. You mean a da 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 Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah, an earworm. I, I, had to, I had to rewrite that a couple of times. Yeah. I mean, that was like episode one, first scene. I, I had that a few goes at that one. I think that's in the trailer they showed as well. So that's like the first audio people heard of She-Ra, the first music. Oh, really? Oh, I, I think so. One of the first. I mean, if not episode one, it sets the stage for the entire series. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I, um, I I was reading through your your live action credits. Definitely some stuff I think our listeners would know that are really cool. You worked on Prometheus and Robin Hood with Ridley Scott. You worked on yeah. Nightcrawler, Drag Me to Hell, which I think is a really great film, yeah. uh, and the Hunger Games. A couple of the Hunger Games movies. You, you did the vocals on Hunger Games, right? Yeah, I did do the vocals on Hunger Games. Yeah, yeah, that was a cool random event. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there's, I noticed Hunger Games, I noticed Maleficent, I mean, but also some kids stuff like uh, Ninjago, that like the Lego movie, um, for, it's a very diverse sort of career you've had. Uh, what, in, in your opinion, what are some of your favorite types of stories to participate in? Um, I mean, gosh, I mean, all the, all the different styles have, have something nice about it, you know, uh, it's so hard to say what my favorite would be. Um, I mean, Shigeru is obviously up there, because that, that felt, you know, a lot of these things I wrote additional music on, so I wasn't, like, the main composer. Um, and, and they all had, I mean, I don't think there's anything that I haven't enjoyed at all. There's nothing like, I hate this. Something like Nightcrawler was so cool because you can set like a really dark scene with um you know using orchestra and weird synths and create this really unsettling vibe which i love doing but i also love the big sweeping shira orchestra stuff or you know like an action sequence in ninjago it's hard to pick a favorite i have to say because they all have a different thing that i really enjoy what types of maybe characters do you find particularly inspiring to you? Maybe not just even as an artist, but as a person. Wow, that's the question nobody ever asked before. Uh, Crushing it. <laughs> Goodness me. Um, okay, well, if I if I look at if I look at Shira, um, I don't know. Someone like Scorpia, I would I would sort of relate to. Someone who's very funny. And sort of an outsider. <laughs> I think I, I think I sort of empathize and uh, empathize with that. And this is one episode, the Scorpio episode. Is it launched launched yet? The whole episode about Scorpio. I literally think the episode we're talking about today that we're going to plug this interview in is Destiny Part Two, and that is when Scorpio unleashes her powers. And so, if we're talking about when Scorpio is sort of walking down the hallway, just blasting lightning around. That was an awesome piece, and I think that might be what you're talking about. So we got you on at just the right time. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> yeah, no, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, characters. That's one, of my, that's one of my favorite moments in the show musically, and there have been a couple of, like, 
episodes where if the story ends at the Horde and it ends with Hordak saying something sinister, the songs that go over the credits are always so like gnarly and evil sounding. <laughs> uh, is there any difference in when you get to basically do the credit song? Do you get to just have more of a free for all then? Because oh, there's nothing I on love, screen anymore. I love doing the end credits. Yeah, because it is. I mean, often it would be like keep going with whatever was last in the you know whatever the last scene is doing. Keep building on that, um, which I would sometimes do, or sometimes we bring back another cue from the. I mean, it would always be a cue from the episode, obviously. Uh, and then Bill and then, yeah, no, because sometimes it's, uh, even a, um, a theme could get like a B section in the, in the end credits, which would be exciting. Uh, Netflix, Netflix always wants you to skip the credits, and I'm so mad at that. I always watch them so I could listen to the songs. I know. It's so funny because my five-year-old, my oldest, started watching Shira, and uh, <laughs> for a couple, for, he's watching the first episode, and then it goes to the credits, and Netflix, you know, cuts it off and goes to the next. He actually started crying. He's like, but I want to listen to the end credits. <laughs> I think for me, the, the most delightful surprise in the whole series was um, the when you did uh, For the Honor of Love over the end credits in the throwback episode. Just because like I kind of sort of suspected the theme was coming because our friends at DreamWorks were like, there's going to be an episode for you in this next season. <laughs> but I did not expect that you would have covered the original closing credits theme uh, to end that episode. And I've probably listened to that like 20 times. You know, it was so funny because when we were looking at that episode, um, the plan was to have to license the original song. for the Just episode. like straight up use the original straight recording? Up. Yeah. Wow. But uh, so I was still expecting that. And then it was like a day before the episode was mixed and they were like, um, so where's the end credits? I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you guys were licensing it. They're like, oh no, that didn't work out. I thought you were doing one. I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> Oops. So I'm like, whoops. So I did one. So the vocals are me and my assistant doing it. <gasps> no way. Yeah. I love that. That's so cool. <laughs> and I mean, it was more out of necessity than anything else. But I think it's. Uh, I think we pulled. I think you know we pulled it off. Oh, it's absolutely delightful. If anyone hasn't listened to the – there's like a full-length version of the original song on YouTube, by the way, that is fully absurd. There's like a guitar solo in it that modulates keys for no reason at all. It's like hitting way above its its need there, but it's absurdly good. Nice. I think that was an Erica Scheimer special back in the day. Uh. So speaking of full-length uh, songs, we keep seeing on the internet people asking and asking and asking if there's ever going to be a soundtrack released for She-Ra. People at DreamWorks have actually expressed that desire to show, too. Yeah. I mean, I would buy that vinyl record 10 times and just give it to people. Be like, listen to this. Do you have any pull over that? Do you have any knowledge about that? Can that happen? <laughs> you know, unfortunately, I'm I'm as in the dark as you guys about it. It's uh, it's been it's been mentioned that that um, you know I think my manager uh, inquired and said, "Oh my gosh, look at all these people on Twitter!" Um, and she pointed out, "Like, look at all these people asking for a for a score release." I'm like, "Oh, that's nice," <laughs> but. Um, uh, I, I don't think there's a final answer yet, to be honest. I, so I don't know. I just don't know. That's a fine answer. I just know our fans would not be happy if we didn't ask. Yeah, we we'll, didn't at least try to find out. We'll add our voices to that for sure. 
Oh, well, you're very kind. <laughs> uh, we've seen you on a couple of other uh, YouTube channels, podcasts and things, but any any of those sorts of interviews that I was able to find were maybe a year or even or even longer in the past. So some stuff has happened since then. I mean, there's a whole other season of She-Ra out, and you were also nominated for an Annie. Congratulations on that. Thank um, you. What was, what was that news like, or how did it feel finding it out? It was nice, yeah. The episode um, that was submitted was Beast Island, um, which is one that Noelle really wanted to submit because that's one that she really liked musically. And uh, I said, you know, go for it. I, I, I like I like it as well. And, um, yeah, my manager called me and said, did you know you're nominated for an Annie? And I'm like, uh, no. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm a bit of an idiot, I guess. So I forgot to even look at these things when they were released. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that's submitted, that DreamWorks submit, and then, you know, ages later, it's uh, it's announced, and it's not. I, I didn't write it in the calendar. Like, oh, you're nominated for an Annie. Like, oh, my gosh. And then, uh, yeah, I thought that was really lovely, obviously, that, you know, people like the, the music. And that's obviously a, a compliment. I hope, uh, and I, I don't think I'm, I'm reaching too high in this hope. I hope it's the first of, of many nominations. Shira, I th- we're pretty sure is coming to a close relatively soon. Like we have a little bit of not not knowledge that was given to us, but just knowledge we can just discern. And I feel like the closer that day comes, the more they're going to start submitting for stuff. Once there's a whole sort of masterpiece created, I hope many many more accolades are coming your way. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I Do you have any more questions, Lauren? I've got one I'd like to maybe close with. It's a bit of a stretch. I have one that we've asked our other uh, sort of industry guests before, and that is if our listeners are interested in having a life like yours, you know, I want to create music for movies and TV too, what would you recommend as maybe the tools that they should invest in or just a way to get started? Yeah. Um, that, that, yeah, that's an, a question with lots of answers in a way. The thing is, there's so many different routes to, you know, become a film and TV composer. There's no right way, not a wrong way. Um, you know, I would start with having a computer and music software, um, such as Cubase or Digital Performer or Logic and, um, learn, learn, because it's a very technical profession, you know, no one's sitting by a piano with, score paper anymore unfortunately uh, you have to be technical you have to know how to how to sequence as it's called how to use the software and hardware and you have to know about um, you know drives and drive speeds and and you know how to connect them and uh, it's, it's a strange thing that composers have to be technical or you have to be very established and have people do it for you but until that time that's something that just needs to happen. And then, um, I mean, doing something like a music, like a film scoring course, I did that. Uh, and it was more about learning people, meeting people, uh, that then led to other things. There's a cat meowing here. Sorry. No, that's all right. <laughs> I Hi, was kitty. wondering cat or child. I couldn't even yeah. tell. Oh, I chill, chill. I put them far, far away. But no, this is my cat. He's not leaving me alone. Um, so yeah, I did a film scoring thing. I, I don't think you have to do that. You can. Um, I worked for a lot of other composers. Again, you don't have to do that, but it's a very good way of seeing how it's really done. Um, and it's, you know, it's not just about 
Yeah, it's a funny thing, like part of this job is such a small part is to be able to write good music, you know. There's a lot of very good composers just sitting at home because you just have to have other skills such as the one I just mentioned and also, you know, being able to interact with um with the filmmakers in a way that makes them feel at ease and makes them feel, you know, trusted. It's um Am I making any sense? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you are, and it's something that I have felt about uh, all kinds of different arts and all kinds of different media. I, I have witnessed so many people who are maybe great painters or great DJs or great actors just you know, wondering why they're not being discovered or why they're not making it because their product is so good. And you're kind of striking at that, that it's not just about the product, it's how you work with other people, it's how you market yourself, who you know, and those other soft skills, I think, particularly the part you said about putting others at ease, I think that's really relatable. And if you're, you know, if you're an arrogant, like, my acting is so good, I can't believe I'm not, uh, I'm not winning an Oscar, like, that's the opposite of putting people at ease. And so... Yeah, it takes, I think, a special personality that not everyone has. And sometimes that's more valuable knowledge than should I be using GarageBand or what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I mean, who the hell still uses GarageBand anyway? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not a composer. That's so. what we're recording on right now, funnily <laughs> enough. I'm just like letting that one sink in. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, absolutely. So I guess here here's my question for you, and this may not – uh, this may not go anywhere, but I'm I'm curious because you've worked on Hunger Games, you work on Shira. These are two very like um, kind of women centric action franchises that really feel like they speak very much to um, the the 2010s and now the 2020s, like the climate that we live in, uh, and and they give you know a lot of people a, a a character and a thing to rally around, which I think is really great. Do you kind of are these thoughts that are like running through your head as you're scoring for them? Are, do you, do you have any, do you feel like any connection to that or is it just kind of like, well, it's what happens to come along or, or do you feel like, you know, with, with bringing kids into the world and whatever, that this is like some kind of, I don't know, like, I, I guess pontificate on that if that makes any sense. Yeah. You mean the, the female driven thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's like the, the, the product that's being made some, you know, like Shira or strong female characters and, uh, you know, diversity, blah, blah. I love that. I love that my son is watching that being, you know, princesses being kick ass and, you know, the character with, with gay parents or, you know, gay characters. I love that. I think that's great that for them, this is normal when they grow up rather than a rarity. Um, so I'm very happy to be part of that. Um, as for like, uh, you know, being a female scoring it, like, uh, you know, I've never seen myself as a female composer. I've always just seen myself as a composer who happens to be a woman. Uh, I, I, I feel like I'm ahead of the game and like, I don't, I don't need to be hired because I'm a woman. I'd like to be hired of because of the music that I'm writing. And I hope that that's at some point where, you know, where we'll end up, where, you know, people aren't hiring women because they have to or whatever they have to reach, you know, or they have to have some kind of quote out like, Oh, we have to hire some women. We, you know, they just get hired because it's normal. Um, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's the end point we all want, but, uh, Oh, Hey kitty. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, incredible music. And, and, uh, it was so nice to be able to talk to you about 
this. So thank you so much for taking the time to to do it. Oh, thank you, guys. Uh, what is your cat's name? Because I feel like we're going to get tweeted at if we don't find out. <laughs> well, I have a little annoying cat called Mahoney, but this one mm-hmm. it's also slightly annoying. He's called Puzika. Oh, wonderful. Which is a Dutch name. It's a... Uh... Sort of a Dutch cat. <laughs> uh, before we go, uh, A, what is in the near future for you? I mean, what can we expect from you or where should we look for you? And then B, if our listeners at home want to learn more about you, you can plug your website or somewhere else online. Um, well, the thing to look out for, um, animation lovers, is Spirit. Like I mentioned, Spirit Ponytails is the latest season called. And um, it's a continuation of... Uh, the story of Lucky with her horse spirit, um, which is really lovely and a lot of fun. Very different than Shira, but um, really great. And my website is uh, myname.com, sonaviermeyer.com. Wonderful. Well, I think that brings us to the end, right, Lauren? It sure does. We have a really appreciated meeting you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Uh, we'll talk to you maybe again one day. And best yeah. of luck with everything. That will be fun. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower.